first Sunday back from vacation for him and for me. And uh, I tell you what, uh, before we get into today's message, I, I just want to, in my opportunity, I guess, to celebrate with you on what a phenomenal weekend and week it was last week. Praise God. Um, you already know over, yeah, just amazing. Um, over 900 pounds of peanut butter was collected by growth groups. There were 11 middle school students and four adults who attended the Believe Conference as part of CIY in Anderson, Indiana. A couple of dozen or so people worked on the campus on our annual work day, and I think it looks amazing and ready for Easter Sunday. There were three baptisms, uh, Ella Nelson, Levi Nelson, and Brian Hodgins, and I got to tell you, when I... Somebody had sent me a video clip of those, and just there are no words. I mean, just your heart just overflows with joy uh, for all three of them. Praise God. And then 75%, I think I figured, of our uh, promotional signs for Easter, yard signs, uh, were taken on the very first Sunday that we offered them. And it's been fun driving around town and community here and seeing the signs in all of the yards. It's fantastic. And then uh, I believe we have the... Uh, correct number in the uh, in your worship program this morning. We, we broke a hundred in growth groups again last week with a hundred one, and so that's just a, a fantastic thing. God is doing a great thing, and and uh, all of us I think should be glad to be a part of of what He is doing. Easter is a time for growing deeper in your faith, for growing deeper in your faith. Today we're going to look at a, 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 f- a familiar story of kind of that first realization that the tomb was empty. Not sure exactly what it meant uh, at the time when they first discovered it empty, but I want us to look at the responses uh, primarily of Mary and of Peter and of John and to kind of glean some of how we need to grow deeper in our faith this Easter season. And also, I think, to gain a greater awareness of that journey that people have in their spiritual process of understanding who Jesus is, of crossing that line and becoming born again into him, and becoming followers of Jesus. We're going to be in John chapter 20 today, primarily those first 10 verses, uh, and uh, we're, just going to, we're just going to jump right into it. Mary had an emptiness that needed filled. She had an emptiness that needed filled. Jesus had died. He had been buried. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea had provided a tomb uh, for Jesus to be put in. Uh, Because of Passover and so forth and and the Sabbath, it was not possible for them to prepare his body fully for burial. And uh, I've seen some elaborate models of what the tomb might have looked like. There was like uh, an inner chamber, and then there was like a preparatory chamber. So kind of imagine like the prep room at a funeral home where a body is first taken uh, when when taken to the funeral home. So Jesus' body has been temporarily put in an area waiting for the more permanent process. Now, obviously, they were somewhat limited in their burial processes then compared to our embalming practices of today. And the best way I can kind of describe it as I understand it is that basically a body would be kind of laid on a sheet and they would put a potpourri all up and down and they would roll that body and then they would put more potpourri and they would roll that body and put more potpourri and so you kind of have this um, you know this wrapping going on of layers of potpourri over a, a body and that is what these women are going to do going to the tomb at their very first opportunity to do so. 
You know, the, the culture, the law, the, the rules had prohibited them from doing it any sooner. But at the moment it became okay for them to do so, they headed off. John 21 verse, uh, verses 1 and 2 say this. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. There's still a lot of despair in her voice. Not only now does she have sorrow, but now she also kind of has a panic. What now kind of emotion is kicking in within her? Now what have they done to us? Now what have they done to our Lord? Have they taken his body away too? She sees the empty tomb, and she immediately has an emptiness that needs filled. Our days typically start at midnight, 12 a.m., And when you want to be real technical about uh, filling out a report, something happens at 1 o'clock, it is technically the next day, even though maybe we don't think of a day starting till sun up. Technically, it starts at 12 a.m. If you are a huge fan of a, a, a trilogy or a movie series and you can't wait for it to come out and the day it opens, real fans do what? They go to the movie theater at 11.45 so that they can be there at midnight and see the very first showing of it because technically that's the day it opens and it's a new day and they can see it after midnight. And so before the sun had even come up, these ladies are going to go to the tomb and they're going to prepare Jesus's body for burial. Um, Mary Magdalene came as early as anyone would be allowed And she was horrified to see that the tomb had been opened. A survey of all four Gospels will tell you that Salome, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Joanna, and the other women were all early arrivers at the tomb. When some of the other ladies had had come and they had had this angelic appearance and they did not see Jesus and they went and they told the other apostles, it says that they did not believe them and just considered it tales that they were that they were sharing idle talk that they brushed off and they even told Jesus on the road to Emmaus some of our women had gone and they saw that the tomb was empty but him they did not see Um, you see the skepticism uh, in in their voices but in this particular account here in John chapter 20 Uh, John only tells us about Mary Magdalene because the emphasis of his account is on John and Peter's response to Mary's report that the tomb was empty. And that's really all there was to report. When you think about the first report, it's not that exciting. It's just an empty tomb. And an empty tomb in and of itself doesn't tell you anything unless you see a resurrected person who was formerly dead. And at this point in the story, Mary has an intense emptiness. And she's kind of wringing her hands. And she runs off and she finds, she finds John and Peter. Um, they didn't know of a resurrection yet. It could perpetuate the hope that just maybe Jesus was alive. For many of his followers, they assumed it just meant ongoing torture. They thought that the body had been taken away from them as well as the person. We don't know where they have what, where they have laid him, assuming Jesus to still be dead. Mary Magdalene was a very special person. Jesus had cast seven demons from her. He had changed her life. She was one of his 
most devoted followers. She loved Jesus, and she felt incredible defeat over the crucifixion. Whatever she had hoped he would do, whatever kind of earthly kingdom he would usher in, all of those dreams had died, and yet she still had such a love and a passion for him that she wanted to go and worship him in this way by preparing his body for burial. Mary references the other women who were at the tomb when she uses the the plural pronoun we. We don't know where they have laid him. An empty tomb will only do so much, and Mary did not have a lot of hope. She just had emptiness. There's a lot of emptiness in our world today, isn't there? When you think of the truth of the Easter story and the hope that it can bring, and you partner that with our society today and with what we see on the news and with all the peace marches and everything to try to, to try to end the violence in downtown Indianapolis and everybody's looking for answers and how can we beef up security and how can we do more and more and more to try to get mankind to, to behave. There is an emptiness and a hopelessness, it seems. When you hear of the uh, opioid uh, crisis and the addiction and you see parents of addicted adult children and and you see their desperation and how they would give every penny they had to any kind of a rehab that would bring about a a a perfect renewal of their child and and good health and that their child would never go back to those drugs again they'd pay it in a second there is an emptiness there is a great need when you see the brokenness of families today, and you see uh, children that are abused, and you hear these things on the news, and, and you think, how could this possibly happen? How can people be so empty? There is an emptiness that people have. Maybe you, you yourself feel an emptiness over something like abandonment, Your hopes or your dreams didn't kind of go the way that you thought they would. And maybe the people that you trusted the most have betrayed you. And so you find yourself at a loss. There is that emptiness. Like Mary, you believed in Jesus and you still trust in him and you still follow him. But there is real hurt. And in your your emptiness, you find yourself wringing your hands, not sure exactly what to do. Or maybe you've got people that you're ministering to or reaching out to and You don't know exactly how to help them. You're not even sure they want to get well. But even good things can leave you empty. Have you ever thought of that? Look at Solomon, right? That's kind of what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. Solomon had it all. He was the king. He had wealth. He had wisdom. He had so much gold that I've read that he would take the gold and he would have it ground into a powder so he could sprinkle it in his hair so it would glisten in the sunlight. He had elaborate gardens and courtyards with every kind of of flower or plant that you could imagine of that day. And he could walk through it at any time and fresh springs and and the the best musicians and the best poetry and everything that life could possibly afford. And yet there was a restlessness in his soul. And he began to evaluate all that he had. He evaluated wealth, and he evaluated power, and he evaluated all of, all of the, uh, the respect that comes with being royal. And under the sun, which is a recurring uh, statement throughout Ecclesiastes, in everything that there is under the sun, there is a vanity, he would say. And at the end, he said, the conclusion of the, of the whole matter is this. Fear God, 
and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. When it comes down to the very end of life, it won't matter whether or not you had millions and millions and millions of dollars. It won't matter whether or not you had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Facebook friends. It won't matter whether or not you had one, two, three, or four degrees and several letters after your name. It won't matter the type of home you lived in. It won't matter the type of position that you held uh, in any kind of an organization. One thing's going to matter, and that is, did you know God? and did you follow his son Jesus Christ that's all that's going to matter the whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments and every one of us in this place today whether you are a male or a female old or young rich or poor all of us can be wealthy beyond measure if we are followers of Christ because the true wealth is not in this life but the one to come The true wealth is in eternity. What can escape, what will not corrode, what will not get older. (laughs) As I've crossed the 50 mark, I find myself praying to God, though outwardly I am wasting away day after day, inwardly, please renew me. I've heard it said of, of older folks, as we get older and closer to the end of this life, We become homesick for heaven because we have more friends there than we have here. (laughs) And I think that that's true. I think that's true. There's only so much that we can do to slow down the things that happen to us. Whether Whether it's the bad things that happen or it's the good things that happen, none of those can fill that emptiness. It sounds cliche. Preachers have been saying it for years. But you have a Christ shaped void that only he can fill. Remember when you were a little kid, did you have one of those little um, boxes that had the holes in it that were shaped? Some were like stars, some were squares, some were circles, some were ovals. And you had the pieces to it, and each piece would go in its hole, right? The star wouldn't go in the circle, and the circle wouldn't go in the square, and the square wouldn't go in the rectangle, and the rectangle wouldn't go in the oval. Only the hole designed for it could it fit through. And we are wired intentionally by God in such a way that he has put within us a hole that only his son, Jesus, can fill. He's put you in the driver's seat to choose what you're going to try to put in that hole. If you want to try to put the circle in the square and you want to try to put the square in the star and you want to try to put the star in the rectangle, (laughs) go for it. But you're never going to get it to go through if it's not meant to go through. And Jesus is what's meant to fill your heart and your soul. And Mary knew that, and Mary needed him, and Mary wanted him. And not only was he dead, but now his body was gone as well. She obviously had a great love for him. One of Satan's most effective tools is this, I think, and that is isolation. When Mary found the empty tomb, she was devastated, but the very first thing she did was she went to find Peter and John, right? She didn't just go off and isolate herself and be depressed and frustrated she went to find Peter and John and I applaud everyone that's that's here today for for your desire to be in community with others other imperfect people who know we are not perfect and that we need a savior and that Jesus is the only way and that we come together to say I don't have it all together you hear people say, I'd go to church, but I don't, want to, you know, I don't want to go to church because of all the hypocrites. And I don't want to be a hypocrite, so I just don't go. That's so ludicrous. Because 
the fact that we come here to me is an admission that we're not perfect and we don't have it all together. (laughs) It takes humility to go to church. Just like it takes humility for sick people to go to the hospital and to admit, I'm not well, I need a physician. Get me to the ER. (laughs) It's hard to admit that, to finally say, that's it, I'm going, and to go to the doctor or the immediate care center or the hospital. And if you view the church, the body of Christ, the being together, the ecclesia, if you view that as a hospital for the spiritual hurting, then then praise God we had the humility to be here. Not the pride to say we're good enough, but the humility to do so. I pray that Dover Christian Church is a place that will always be a place where everyone can feel welcome and loved and find help with their emptiness as they help others with theirs. The second thing that we get from this is as soon as John and Peter hear about the empty tomb, the very first thing that John and Peter do is they take off running. But John had a passion, I believe, that ignited an urgency within him. It says in verses 3 through 5, So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, was running faster and ran on ahead of him. But it says that he did not go in. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. John may have uh, outrun Peter, some suppose, because maybe he was younger. (laughs) Possibly. Maybe he was in better shape physically, possibly. I still think he, he outran Peter because he had an urgency, a passion that ignited an urgency. Are you passionate about Christ? If you are, if you have a true passion for him, if you love him more than anything else, and you want to grow deeper in your faith this Easter season, then you will run to him and be drawn to opportunities to worship him. Easter should increase our passion for Jesus like like nothing else. And there is no other Sunday of the year, no no other weekend of the year in which our unchurched neighbors and friends are more apt to say yes to an invitation to come and to hear the, the claims of Christ and what it's all about than Easter Sunday. It's been called the Super Bowl of the Christian faith. It's our big moment. It's our annual opportunity that we have to celebrate and to proclaim that the grave is empty. And regardless of what the average person in our, our culture understands about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I still think that they know there is something spiritual about this weekend. Uh, I was in New Orleans last week, and uh, there <laughs> near Bourbon Street in a storefront window were some outfits on display, and at the bottom it said, Easter Sunday, April 21st. <laughs> because retailers know. For them, it's the bottom line. It's the dollar sign. They know we can sell a lot of clothes. Candy makers know they can sell a lot of candy. Uh, People that make gasoline know that there are more travelers because, because there's something special about this weekend, and you and I know what it is. And it ignites an urgency in us, that passion that we want to bring everybody to come and to hear the good news, and if they will, to celebrate with us. 
It's good that the linen was left lying there. As John, the one whom Jesus loved, he, he refers to himself not by name, but as the one whom Jesus loved. As John gets to the edge of that tomb, he's run ahead of Peter, but he's a bit reserved about going in. I think it's because of the sacredness of the grave. You know, just like you try not to stand on a, on a grave. It's somewhat disrespectful. And so he's gotten to the edge of this tomb, and he's looking in, and he's studying as, as Peter is still running. And what does he see? He sees this outer cloth, the one I talked about earlier, that Jesus was to be wrapped in and, and what the body would have been taken in. And it's, it's no longer nice and neat, and it's no longer wrapped around a body. It's just laying off to the side. And one of my commentators, I thought I had a great point, said, had body stealers come and stolen the body of Christ, they would have utilized the sheet, not left it behind. <laughs> Why would you have unwrapped this incredibly bloodied, beaten, broken body and carried that out of their tomb as messy. I mean, that would have been not a good thing. You would have been glad that the body would have been tightly wrapped up in this cloth and you would have just thrown him over your shoulders and said, let's get going. <laughs> let's run. Let's take him. Let's get out of here. But instead, it was still lying there. Um. I said earlier that Joseph and Arimathea, of Arimathea had given the tomb for Jesus to be buried. A Roman soldier had been appointed to keep guard over the tomb. Someone had said, you know, hey, there's a rumor going around that he said, tear this body down. Three days later, I'll rise again. I'm telling you what, if we don't put it, we're going to regret it. We better put us. And so they put a Roman soldier to guard this tomb. And the, the stone was not the type of stone that you could just roll away easily. Jesus was secured. His body was secured. And John observed this. The next thing we see, Peter catches up. Peter had a curiosity that demanded an investigation. Mary had an emptiness that needed filled, and John had a passion that ignited an urgency. And Peter had a curiosity that demanded an investigation. Verses 6 and 7. It says, Then Simon Peter came, following him, John. He went into the tomb. He just, isn't that Peter, right? You could kind of picture that. You know, John's standing there kind of checking things out, and Peter comes bursting right past him and goes right on in. Okay. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, was not lying with the linen cloths, but had been folded up and put away, or put at a place by itself. Nice and neatly folded. Again, grave robbers would not do that, right? And the thinking is that Jesus, as he physically, bodily rose from the grave and sat upright, took that cloth off of his face. I think he shook his hair, you know, just kind of. And he folded that grave cloth and set it off to the side. A nice host, or nice guest of this borrowed tomb folded up his face cloth. The Greek word for Saul, there in, um, uh, there in the, the passage, uh, implies an intense stare that Peter, true to his personality, just burst into this tomb and that he stared at the, the grave cloth. Look at Luke 28, 1 through 10, if you have that with you. <clears throat> Again, there's only so much you can cover in an Easter series. But I've always loved <clears throat> Luke's account of, of the drama behind the opening of the tomb. 
Luke gives us a little more information. He says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. These are Roman soldiers. But the angel said to the the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. <clears throat> see, I have told you. <clears throat> so, that, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. <laughs> and they came up and took hold of his feet, and they worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This angel of the Lord rolls the stone away, and then he hops up and sits on it. I think he crossed his legs and folded his arms. <laughs> Don't I get you to see? And it says that his appearance was like lightning. I've always loved that because it wasn't just bright. It was like lightning. Lightning, white heat is the hottest heat. And these angels, they, were, they had this bright appearance like lightning and their clothing as white as snow. This angel sits up on the stone as if, take that, you know, job done kind of thing. The Roman soldiers are so afraid that they are trembling and they have fallen to the ground like dead men, <laughs> soldiers. And the women are the ones who are charged with going and telling the men that Jesus has risen just as he said he would, and where they will find him. And when they went, that's where they found him. That's powerful. The empty tomb doesn't have to be all that scary if you have a messenger giving you the good news. And the word angel means messenger. And these messengers were giving them the good message, Jesus is alive as he said he would be. The final thing as we wrap things up that I want us to see is that they all had a belief that wanted more. They had a belief that wanted more. I've had the privilege in many years of ministry now of sharing the gospel with people who, who wanted to believe, but they just weren't there yet. Not somebody that's being skeptical for the sake of skepticism, somebody that's just being, trying to cause a debate or give you a hard time, but somebody who genuinely wants to believe in Jesus, but they, they are checking out the claims of Christ, and for them, they're just not there yet. And it's so hard because you can't believe for another person, no matter how much you would like to and no matter how much they want to believe. The disciples knew a lot about Jesus, but they didn't have all of the Old Testament prophecies linked to him just yet. Verses 8 and 10, the 8 through 10. Says, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, that's John, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead, and the disciples went back to their homes. John believed that Jesus was no longer dead. He believed he had risen from the dead, and he was on his way. And that's why I titled this point in the message, they had a belief that wanted more. 
You remember the story of the dad who came to Jesus and he told Jesus about his child who had been sick and tormented and demon-possessed and so forth, and he comes to Jesus and he tells him, he begs and he pleads with him. You get the impression that Jesus is being pressed in by crowds and crowds of people and that this dad has worked his way through the crowd and he's finally gotten up to Jesus and he, said, he tells him the story and he says, but if you can do something, and it says Jesus stops and looks back at him and says, if I can let me tell you, all things are possible to him who believes. And the guy's response is priceless. He said, oh, I do believe. Help me with my unbelief. Now, that's not an oxymoron. I do believe. Help me with my unbelief. Because i got to tell you, we're all kind of in that boat. Because if you know 100% that Jesus is who he said he is, and you have no questions and no skepticism, at all, then you no longer believe you know. <laughs> Belief requires faith in that which is not yet seen, hope of what we do not yet experience. And this dad who said that to Jesus was on his way to believing. And I believe that for a lot of folks, our faith starts out very small, size of a mustard grain, a mustard seed size, and can grow into something beautiful. When we open ourselves up, and we take what little faith that we have and say, I want, to, I want more. I want more. And John was in that boat. John saw the grave clothes, the facial cloth. He saw the empty tomb. And he believed. But he wanted more. This morning, um, I don't know where you are spiritually. And I don't know what the empty tomb means to for you personally, or for your friends, your neighbors, your, your children, your co-workers, teammates. But we all know people. We all know people who need to grow deeper through the Easter story, the good news of why that tomb was empty. And next week is our opportunity to talk about why the tomb was empty and to begin those appearances of Jesus to lots and lots and lots of people after the resurrection it is an exciting, exciting story. There's an old story about uh, some students, Sunday school students, who um, were told to take plastic eggs. You probably have heard this story. Many people have. It's an old story. Take the plastic egg and put something in each egg and bring it back next week that would represent uh, spring and new life. And there was one child who had some special needs and some some difficulties reasoning and understanding things and was not expected to live for very long and, and was always needing a little extra attention from the teacher. And that next Sunday when they brought in those eggs and they cracked them open, one child had a butterfly in it and one child had a flower in his and, and uh, there were all different kinds of things. One child had put some water in his to represent rain. And there were all these new life and spring kind of things. And then when they got to this little boys who had the special needs and had always been an extra difficult student to try to help, they opened his up and his was empty. And all the kids snickered and laughed and said, he didn't do it right. He does everything wrong. And the teacher looked at him and the little boy said to the teacher, it's empty, like Jesus' tomb was empty. That's new life, right? He got it. He got it. 
And everybody in the classroom was impressed. As the teacher began to applaud, they all applauded and they celebrated the right answer because that emptiness represented a faith that was full. Pray with me. Father God, I thank you for the empty tomb. I thank you for Jesus, your son. Lord, I thank you that we do have the hope of of everlasting life because he came back from the dead. He conquered death in the grave and he died in our place. God, we can have the hope that though our sins be as scarlet, as the old hymn says, they can be washed white as snow by the blood of of the lamb, Jesus. God, I'm thankful that it's not just about eternal life and, 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 and what comes next, but God, it's about the here and now as well as we become followers of Jesus in your kingdom. I pray for every single one of us, God, this Easter season to grow deeper. I pray, God, that this Easter season there would be people that we know, maybe we've known for years, who have never made life's most important decision, God, to follow you. I pray that we would see that happen through the Easter message. Lord God, it's all about you. Would you be honored and glorified, please, in this time as we continue to sing and to praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.